Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory. If you haven't already subscribed, please catch us wherever you love to listen to your podcast, from the Relevant Radio app to Apple, YouTube, you name it, we are there. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to go and give us a five-star review to help other people discover the podcast. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Welcome to our weekly marriage hour here on Trending. We've been talking a lot about babies, baby making, birth control, vasectomies, you name it. In the face of the overturning of Roe versus Wade, the conversations are hot right now when it comes to children and baby making, among other things. So we've been talking this week about vasectomies yesterday. Fascinating. If you don't know the medical fallout of vasectomies, you've got to go listen to the podcast, relevantradio.com forward slash trending or we are wherever you catch your podcast. Listen to the full episode. Don't miss a beat here on Trending. But I want to talk today about birth control. Many people are turning to birth control and so-called emergency contraception, which is also can function as an abortion, and to answer the problem for them as to what they believe will be no access or limited access to abortion. So joining me in just a moment will be Mike Gaskins. He wrote the book In the Name of the Pill, and this is going to blow your mind. Some things you might know about birth, birth control already, but other things that we're going to discuss, such as why birth control was put on the market for massive use by millions of women before it was ever proven safe. We'll also talk about the medical fallout, including numerous chronic and deadly diseases and side effects many women are experiencing from hair loss, thyroid issues, stroke, and more here on Trending. But I also want to talk about this whole idea of having children. We talked a little bit about it yesterday, but I want to hear from you. If you didn't want kids and changed your mind, what made you change your mind? I have been receiving tons of responses on social media and I'm really excited to share with you a little bit of the insights into many people's attitudes about children that I think are common for people of faith, secular people, that we can all learn from. Also, Jordan Peterson gave us three principles to consider when choosing a romantic partner. We're going to talk about these three principles for marriage today while picking a partner, but also some lessons for us married people as well. And I'll talk about the best way as a Catholic to find a spouse, what women should be looking for and what men should be looking for. So stay with me. It's our weekly marriage hour, dating relationships, married, not married. This hour is for you. The number is 1-888-914-9149. Joining me now is Mike Gaskins. He's the author of In the Name of the Pill. We're going to unpack how the pill was made accessible before it was ever proven safe for women to take, nor has it ever been proven safe even to this day. We're going to dive into a little bit of the history and medical research from 60 years ago on that little pill known as the pill. That's how 
famous it is, birth control. Mike Gaskins, welcome to Trending. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. I was unpacking much of your book. You do everything from talking about the medical fallout women are experiencing, which we'll get to in just a moment. But I want to start with talking about how on earth the hormonal contraception pill was ever made accessible to people before it was actually clearly proven safe. Can you walk us through a little bit of the inception of the pill, including some of the Puerto Rico trials that were done out of the country because they knew this was highly experimental and dangerous? Yeah, it's, it's it's really interesting to look at the history, and I, I've never really been a history buff, but uh, like you said, so many there there's so many rabbit holes that just kept blowing my mind for five or six years until I finally got to a point where I, I think I became numb to it. Um, but it, it's interesting to see how population growth was such a fear uh, in those times in the late '50s, and it was constantly hammered on the news. Um, and there were some really powerful people behind this movement to try to get population growth down to zero. They felt like there were just too many people on the planet and they were willing to do whatever it took uh, to put a stop to it. Um, so Mar Margaret Sanger, you know, who um, I'm sure most listeners are familiar with, was really a driving force behind it. And she had some pretty deep pockets. Right. Um, and for those who investing. don't know, she's the founder of Planned Parenthood and has pushed for population control and particularly for the uh, getting rid of certain types of people. I mean, she was a eugenicist, not just pushing for abortion, but birth control as well. Right. And so she was she was a key figure in in getting this pill developed. Uh, she helped fund the doctors who developed it. And then what they did was essentially one of her backers was uh, Catherine McCormick. Uh, who was the heir to the International Harvester Fortune. And at one point, she wrote a letter to Margaret Singer saying, we need a cave of, cage of ovulating females to test this on. Um, and so that's essentially what they found in Puerto Rico. They took the drug there and found villagers who were having what they considered too many children. And, and then they just started giving them the pill, not telling them it was a trial, not telling them of potential risks, uh, but basically just testing it out to see how it would work. Um, and one of the things we learned later in, in the Nelson Pill hearings, which is a congressional hearings in the 1970s, uh, was that five women actually died on that trial. But it was never attributed to the pill. They, they never did op autopsies on these women. They just buried them and said it couldn't have had anything to do with the pill, despite the fact that they wow. were young, healthy women. Mm hmm. Wow. And that's so, I think, shocking. And when you start by mentioning that the women in Puerto Rico were first used because Margaret Sanger and her partners in creating this needed a cage to take ovulating women to test the pill on. And then five women of the 132 women died in the short 12 month long study. And that came out, as you mentioned, in the Nelson pill hearings, which are some of the longest, I think the longest hearing we've had uh, in this nation's history. And it touched in many ways on specifically the pill, the hormonal contraception that most women are taking some form of today. Yeah, and it's really interesting, too, to think about, you know, we, we, we hear all about, you know, women's rights and how, you know, people are trying to take away a woman's right to this. Well, if you go back and look at the history, it's really interesting to see that the feminists of that era, era were concerned about 
uh, this. You know, mm-hmm. Barbara uh, Seaman, who who wrote books about the pill, she was you know a feminist journalist who was really concerned with this the way this pill was being pushed on women and how it hadn't been proven safe. And and there was another <laughs> article that came from a uh, a really extreme um, feminist uh, magazine called Off Our Backs, uh, talking about how they feared that their movement was being co-opted by these population growth people. And so it's kind of interesting to see how how many of the feminists were against this in the beginning. Um, and then it, it's kind of taken over their movement. And, it, and their right. movement was kind of co-opted by these people. And that kind of came out in the Nelson Pill hearings, too. There were there were protesters who showed up initially to protest these congressmen who they felt like were trying to take their birth control away from them because it gave them a, an ability to kind of level the playing field and these these old men in Congress didn't like it. But then as these women started hearing the testimonies, their attitude shifted. And suddenly they were like, hey, why are we being used as guinea pigs for this drug that hasn't been proven safe? So it's, you know, it's, it's really fascinating to, to, you know, to, we think of it in today's terms as this is very much a woman's right issue, but, right. but back then it was very much, a, it was questioned. And this touches on the history of the feminist movement, which was a huge compilation, truly, of a pro-woman movement originally. Second-wave feminism really ended up creating that wedge between child and mother. And we see this in the writings of people such as Sue Ellen Browder, who's been a regular guest here on Trending. You can check out some of her podcast episodes. She wrote a book called Subverted, and she wrote for Cosmo magazine. She talks about how uh, this separation occurred in the feminist movement, where Suddenly, the pro-life people and even the pro-health individuals who advocated against the pill were, you know, pushed out of the pro-woman movement, and it became totally pro-abortion, pro-contraception. Now, it's interesting because, as you mentioned, and if you're just joining us, this is Micah Gaskin joining me today on Trending. He wrote the book in the name of the pill. We're going to post a link on social media. You need to pick up this book, especially if you have any women in your life, daughters, teenagers, they need to hear this information. The medical fallout of the pill as well as understanding a little bit of the history of the pill. If you have daughters in particular, um, or maybe yourself, that you're a very pro-woman and you want to be a feminist, you like the idea of feminism, so do I, but feminism today is radically pro-abortion, very anti-woman, does not uphold the health of women, but this book is one of those resources that helps you to be equipped with understanding how to articulate your position on birth control, on, you know, topics such as these that really are pro-woman. So, uh, in your book, Mike, you talk about how as early as 1969 and earlier, as the pill was starting to be um, kind of brought into society, far, far more common, that the research at that time shows that we knew what we knew today, we knew back then, that the same ailments that women are suffering from, that are kind of those secrets that are silenced, that women suffer in silent or maybe aren't connecting the dots with, all of that was there. You cite the British medical data, you cite medical doctors across the nation, the Nelson Pill hearings, feminists as well. Can you dive into a little bit of this research that was common, um, commonly accessible at the time and even uh, shown in mainstream media at the time? What happened? Yeah, well, so one person comes to mind specifically when you talk about that, and it's Dr. Harold Williams, who, who wrote a book in 1970. Um, 
he was a physician and an attorney, and he was kind of outraged at how how much information was out there that we should be looking at and and be <laughs> allow ourselves to be alarmed by. Uh, but it was kind of being suppressed and and not really talked about enough. And one of the things he brought up was that they they keep setting this benchmark and and moving it, you know, so that they could they could say, well, there's not enough data to prove that the pill causes this or that. And they, but they never said what it would take for them to be convinced that the pill was proving that. So, so with this kind of nebulous idea of, you know, what, what would it take to prove it to you? There was really no way to ever establish it. So he, he wrote a book called pregnant or dead where he looked at a lot of those numbers and really dived into what was already happening to women. And this was just after the pill had become sort of commonplace, you know, so there wasn't a lot of history yet, but there was enough to see that some pretty serious things were happening. And, you know, yeah, you know, we know about the strokes and blood clots and things like that. But one of the things that he was really one of the first to dive into was this sense of depression that even Mm -hmm. today, a lot of women Mm -hmm. think, well, it must be something wrong with me because you never hear about it. Um, But so many women were suffering from uh, from depression that he started looking at suicide numbers since the pill came out and saw a dramatic, I think, almost a double increase in, in women versus men in the time that the pill came out, uh, you know, women of reproductive age versus men of the same age. Mm-hmm. And so he was the first one to kind of document this and say, hey, we, you know, actually the deadliest side effect of the pill may be suicide. We may be losing more women that way than we are wow. to, you know, long-term, you know, breast cancer and things of that mm-hmm. nature. And there was even a study that came out a year or two. It was a JAMA study, I believe, talking about how when a woman, especially where her brain's still developing, which we know is up until the age of about 25, that when you take hormonal birth control during those fundamental developmental years, that that's actually leading to a predisposition lifelong, even if you're off of birth control, to have a higher predisposition to depression and anxiety. And no one's talking about that. And this is the truth of what we knew years ago and is only confirmed in larger numbers and more seriously today. Now, it's interesting, Mike, because mainstream reporters were covering this. You discuss in your book how Morton Mintz, who was a reporter for the Washington Post, really kind of made it his mission of just exposing the facts. It's not that he was against birth control, but he saw there was so much information as to the negative impact of it. He wanted to share the information. How did that go for him? And what happened that although the information was out there, why didn't women keep that at the forefront of their minds? Why was it brushed aside all these years later and even then? Well, I, I think the the big thing is there was this recognition, there was this alarm, especially when the Nelson Peer, Pill hearings came out. You know, it's the first time that it was, you know, it kind of led the nightly news and it was above the fold in all the major newspapers. And, and Morton Mintz was, I admire him so much because he he was actually a supporter of Planned Parenthood. And and he had this very, you know, kind of dispassionate, just the facts, ma'am, kind of approach to it. And in his book, he wrote a book as well. And in his book, he said, I want nothing more than to be able to say the pill has been proven safe, but the facts just don't allow me to say it. Um, and so he reported on, on this and he was outraged. He called it a scientific scandal that the pill had been proved based on 132 women who had taken the pill for 12 consecutive months. He said first, and this was in, I believe, 1967, he wrote, first off, that's more women that are going to, than are going to die this year alone, or more women are going to die this year than that alone. Plus, it's only 12 months, and we're talking about a drug that women may take 
you know, conceivably for 15, 20, 30 years, which is, right. has been the case. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's when, when the Nelson Peel hearings ended and there was this huge awareness and women had started calling their doctors saying, what is this you've given to me? The drug companies kind of responded by saying, well, we, we have these new formulations that are safer. But again, they weren't really tested or proven safer. All it took was for them to say, we've come out with a new formulation. And so I think even, you know, even the, you know, the congressmen who put on the hearings and, and, and a lot of the people around it, they just kind of accepted that and they thought they had done their job. And, and plus, the pill also became the first drug to have a patient information pamphlet in every package that came. So and actually, that was, I want it, to get to that because mm-hmm. it's very significant. A lot of people have never read that little pamphlet that comes with the birth control, but on the rare occasion when women do, and I know that was life-changing for you, your wife was on the pill at mm-hmm. the time, and then you saw the pamphlet that fell out and read it, and you were horrified that this was the side <laughs> effect, and not just one, but one after another. So we're going to come back diving into the medical fallout of the pill from hair loss. Do you know that hair loss was one of those? It's actually one I didn't know and to lupus to autoimmune disorders it is something that you your girls everyone needs to know and gentlemen this topic's for you as well this information knowledge is power and it can literally save a life save the future of women we're going to unpack this here the author of in the name of the pill mike gaskins is here with me we'll post a link on social media to the book you need to read this and get this in the hands of your feminist friends we'll be right back here on trending So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Welcome to our weekly marriage hour here on Trending. Dating, single, relationships, marriage, it's all part of the conversation. The goal is marriage, but some of us are working on it. Some of us are working our way there. Yesterday, I threw out the question on social media, asking if you didn't want kids, what changed your mind about having them? I'm fascinated by the responses. I have to share with you some of these because I think there's so much to learn from them, from new parents to parents who have been around the block for a while. We'll also discuss Jordan Peterson's three principles to consider when choosing a romantic partner and also give you my Catholic take on how we should be looking for a spouse as Catholics. Okay, have you ever taken the birth control insert out of the birth control package? Well, this is actually what inspired Mike Gaspins to write the book In the Name of the Pill. It's a fantastic book. Every woman you know who's a feminist, every woman should read this book, understanding the history of the hormonal contraceptive pill and also understanding the medical fallout and side effects for women. This had a huge impact on him when he learned what was in the birth control pill for his wife early on. They got off of it after a short period of time. She was already seeing side effects, but I want to talk about the silent, chronic, and deadly fallout women are experiencing from the pill. Mike, there are so many directions that we could go with this. Let's talk about some of the most common reactions women are having to the pill that they might not necessarily be linking to the pill. Yeah, I think probably the the biggest reaction has to do with autoimmune disease. And then, of course, that's still kind of a, a broad scope of things. But I think it's really not connected to the pill to the level it should be. 
Um, and that was kind of what started my research uh, into this, was kind of this recognition of you know, lupus, for example. Um, there were studies that showed that women who take birth control are 50% more likely to develop lupus. And again, that's one of those things that was brought up in the Nelson Peel hearings back when lupus was a pretty rare and unknown disease. But in that time, since those hearings, uh, the, incident, the incidence of lupus has tripled in the United States, wow. and 90% of the diagnoses are women. Um, so it's kind of hard not to draw the lines and say, well, something's going on here. Uh, and you see similar kinds of things with multiple sclerosis. You know, multiple sclerosis mm -hmm. has always been kind of a discriminatory disease toward women when you look at the gender ratios. But that ratio has shifted and it's weighted a lot more toward women in the years since birth control came out. And women who take uh, birth control are over 30% more likely to develop lupus than women who don't take hormonal birth control. Mm -hmm. um, so I think those kinds of chronic diseases aren't really often associated uh, with birth control, but it, it certainly has an effect on all of those diseases. You know, thyroid as well, hypothyroidism yes. is, is a big one. Uh, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease. Women mm -hmm. who take birth control are five times more likely to develop Crohn's disease than women who don't. So um, there are certainly a lot of numbers that suggest that there's, there's some sort of really close connection there. Uh, and there's even, you know, a pretty good explanation for how, you know, estrogen works in the immune system and why that, uh, you know, that chemical that mimics estrogen could have such an impact on autoimmunity. Um, so I think, and, and even the hair loss, you mentioned the hair loss, um, you know, alopecia is, is, a, is an autoimmune disease as well. And some women are, you know, have it triggered by taking birth control. And even this women who aren't. Yeah. Um, women who aren't predisposed to alopecia, still a lot of them uh, do experience massive hair loss while they're taking birth control. Now, I know that it was really interesting in your book, you actually share about when you were working on at Fashion Week uh, not too long ago, mm -hmm. and you were with a bunch of the hairstylists, and there were comments made about the thinning of hair, which this is kind of like the dirty little secret a lot of people don't realize. There's been this massive decline in the quantity of hair that majority of women have. Can you link that to the conversation you were hearing all these hairstylists have? Yeah, it was really funny. And I, and I think in that chapter I wrote as well, once you start digging into birth control and you see all the different effects it has on a woman's body, you start to see it everywhere. Uh, and, and that was the case. Yeah, I was working a fashion week show and the, the uh, hairstylist who was up on stage, um, she turned off her clippers and she addressed the audience and she said, how many of you that have been cutting hair for longer than five years have noticed that women's hair is thinning? And tons of hands went up across the audience. And she said, well, I've been doing this for 20 years. And she said, I've got to tell you, it's not a new trend. And, and, and her take on it was that it was probably all the processed foods we eat, which I'm sure plays a role. We don't, we don't have the healthiest diets. Uh, right. But also, it has been pretty well documented that since birth control came out, a lot of that, you know, that hair loss has occurred. And, and you see it anecdotally just in woman after woman talking about the massive hair loss from being on hormones. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we and even the connection with food makes sense in correlation with the hormones from birth control. You know, we have these hormones in our meats today that are in, impacting the endocrine system of women as well as, and I don't know, I think you might cover this in your book, um, but talking about the fact that we have a hormonal birth control that is in excess is being uh, 
urinated out and is going into our water system and we have high levels of synthetic hormones today in our drinking water. And it's interesting because I saw a huge um, change when I started drinking water that was really clean, that couldn't have that residue um, of the birth control. And I know this is linked to everything from hermaphrodite fish in places such as the Colorado River to uh, high levels of estrogen in men as well today, the development of man boobs, I guess, as you could put it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's impacting boys and men. It's impacting women as well as a massive endocrine disruptor. I want to talk about one of the common side effects that is so ridiculous that I don't understand why enough people aren't discussing this. And it's migraines, a very common but truly debilitating experience. I remember two of my roommates in college were on birth control, and those were the only two roommates that suffered from severe severe migraines can you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about the connection to migraines yeah and and this is one that frustrates me because i don't think doctors take it seriously enough and i I feel like they have to know Um, but women who who suffer migraines are at a much higher risk of developing blood clots and of having a stroke Um, so you know particularly if you have migraines with aura you should stay away from synthetic hormones period I mean, that, that's what every doctor should be telling these women. Um, but instead, it's, it's oftentimes, well, let's try a different formulation. Let's keep going until we find something that works for you or give it time until your body adjusts. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, if you, if you suffer from migraines, you, you should stay far away from synthetic hormones. And, and there really should be no if, ands, or buts. It's interesting. I don't know if you follow the story a few months ago. Haley Bieber, the model and wife of Justin Bieber, had a stroke. And what came out after the stroke was she shared that her doctor mentioned that one of the causes of was very likely the birth control that she had recently started taking. And she talked about how stroke is a common reaction for women who have birth control. She, you know, is like around 25 years old, otherwise totally healthy. And she said also had the physician looked at her family history, she would be someone who shouldn't be a candidate for birth control because of the side effects of birth control and how they match up with her family history. She had no business being on it. So there's this huge malpractice within the medical field uh, that is failing to occur because uh, it seems as if birth control is so mainstream that it couldn't possibly cause any problem or impact anything to do with your medical history. These things aren't being, uh, you know, checked. The, the T's aren't being crossed. The I's aren't being dotted on this issue for women. No, and, and doctors are starting, well, and I think Big Pharma started to conflate. You know, used to, it was, if you're, you know, your risk starts to really increase if you smoke or if you're over 35, and the drug companies kind of started conflating those two, putting them together so that now a lot of times doctors will say, no, as long as you're, you know, as, as long as you're young, you're fine. You don't have to worry about that. You know, e- even to migraine surf- sufferers, um, you know, or as, you know, as long as you don't smoke. And so it's, they're kind of using these, uh, you know, these indicators against each other to say, well, as long as you're, you know, as long as you don't have both indicators, you don't really have to worry. And that's just not the, you know, that's not the case. 
I always find it fascinating, Mike. And if you're just joining us, Mike Gaskins is here with us. He's the author of the book, In the Name of the Pill. This is a book for all women, men too, but women. You want to be pro-woman, you want to be pro-health, pro-science, pro-medical. This is a book to understand, see the history, as well as the the effect of the birth control pill on women. It doesn't even dive into the interpersonal impact of birth control on relationships, which is a whole nother topic. I saw firsthand for years, Mike, the fallout of birth control, both medically on women in the crisis pregnancy centers. I worked for five years in our crisis pregnancy centers, and there were so many issues from implants in the arm where women would be having severe pain and blood clotting oh, yeah. in the arms. Um, we would see severe migraines, mood swings, anxiety. Often, most of the women coming in who were in an unplanned pregnancy situation had been on one or more forms of birth control. It's not always effective and commonly not taken correctly by young people in particular. And it's leading to things such as permanent sterilization later on. There are many women who would like to have children and think, you know, I can just like that pop right off the pill and I'll have a baby. Uh, But they're experiencing everything from tubal ectopic pregnancies because the baby can't implant properly from the damage from the pill to the inability completely to conceive a child as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting too. uh, This this is a little bit of a tangent, but it popped into my mind when you mentioned ectopic uh, pregnancies. Um, When I wrote the book, I think one of the things I thought was probably the copper IUD was was the safest form because it didn't have any Mm -hmm. hormones in it. Mm -hmm. And I was alarmed by how many women uh, sought me out, emailed me and wrote, please write about the IUD. Um, Because that's another thing that doesn't get nearly enough coverage and enough press time is the IUD is probably nearly as unsafe as these hormonal birth controls. The women, the the types of women that, that, uh, or the types of side effects women experience are very similar in a lot of cases to hormonal birth control. Yeah, it's interesting. And there are forms of the IUD that do release um, the hormone progestin as well, which is a synthetic form of mm-hmm. progesterone, again, that has the same medical fallout. But I mean, it's interesting if you follow the IUD, I'm sure you've seen this in your research, and women were literally having perforated uteruses and damaged onto their bodies yeah. to the reproductive tract. It was taken off of the market for years, and then all of a sudden they pop back up on the market saying, oh, we have a plastic version. And then they bring back the same copper IUD that was literally killing women and the whole fallout mike i know you're catholic as well and we haven't talked at all about the element of faith in this whole conversation but the catholic church got it right it saw that birth control was going to lead to the utility the use of men using women in sexual relationships that it would be used for birth control but it's also so horribly wrong for women's bodies and when we try to you know alter a proper functioning process of the body with everything from vasectomies which we talked about the medical fallout of that yesterday here on trending to birth control you know when you ignore the god-given design for the body and human flourishment and having children it truly damages all aspects of a person's life it it really does and as you mentioned when my wife and i you know when she took birth control we weren't catholic yet but that discussion that we had about it when when i read the pamphlet and was horrified was really eye opening and and really i think one of the pivotal moments in our relationship because i had never 
we our culture teaches us that it's a woman's body, it's her choice, and all this and that. So as men, you oftentimes feel like you have no voice, and you really shouldn't form an, an opinion about it because it's her body and it's her choice. And so even as her husband, I felt kind of funny talking to her about it, like, is this my place? Mm-hmm. And then as I read those side effects, I couldn't help it. It's like, we have to have this dis- discussion. And I was taken aback by how relieved she was when I said, I don't want you taking oh. it. You know, mm-hmm. at the end of our lives, if it means we spend one less day together, it's not worth it. And she was immediately just so relieved and said, I was afraid you would be disappointed. And it, oh. it kind of hurt me that it's like, oh, my gosh, she was doing this for me, even though she didn't feel like herself. She felt like she was crazy, but she couldn't she didn't want to disappoint me because, you know, we, we didn't like condoms and whatever. But so for, for me, it was a really great conversation to realize, wow, OK, even even if it is her body, her toys, I still need to let her know I care. I don't want you doing anything that's going to hurt you. And she needs to hear that from me. So it, it was it was very pivotal moment in our relationship. I think that's such an important statement, too, from the fact that you said, you know, yeah, sure, it's her body, her choice. Uh, if you want to take that mindset, but that doesn't mean you can't have informed consent. You can't know things and that you can't love that person and tell them the truth that you care. And I mean, you were being the leader in a respect uh, by sharing, you know, hey, this is bad for you. And, you know, I want to spend more of my life with you. Uh, this is the truth right. of the matter of birth control of vasectomies. And we need to blow the whistle on this because the mainstream media is not going to do it for us. The pharmaceutical companies won't do it for us, nor will the majority of physicians today who've become second nature at prescribing hormonal birth control. 10 out of 10 recommend this book in the name of the pill. We especially need to get this in the hands of young women so they know and they can inform and form their friends. We posted a link on social media to In the Name of the Pill by Mike Gaskins. Mike, thank you so much for your research, for sharing this information, being an advocate for women's health, women's bodies, and ultimately healthy relationships and one day families, the knowledge people will have with this information. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. It's our weekly marriage hour. We're going to talk about Jordan Peterson's three principles to consider when choosing a romantic partner. I'll give you a Catholic take on what you should be looking for. If you're looking for a spouse, something to pass on, whether you're dating or you know someone who is. And I'm riveted by the response. I put this on social media. Didn't want kids? What changed your mind about having children? These responses are so telling. I can't wait to share them with you. We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Welcome back to our weekly marriage hour today on Trending. Jordan Peterson has something to say about choosing a spouse. He actually posted recently on social media three principles to consider when choosing a romantic partner. I was fascinated by this post because I think many people kind of want that how-to guide. How do I choose a spouse? How do I find someone? What are those simple things, those simple steps? I don't think choosing a spouse is easy in any way whatsoever. When you find the right person, that absolutely helps. But that whole process of dating and relationships 
it's challenging. And even once you get there, trying to figure out that relationship and the good qualities you have and maintain within marriage is challenging. And so whether you're married or you're working your way toward marriage, these three principles to consider when choosing a romantic partner, I thought were very helpful. The three principles, and we'll break them down, that Jordan Peterson lays out are honesty, the ability to negotiate, and compatibility. So touching on this topic, do or do not, opposites attract. He says that these three reasons, among many more, are why it's essential to understanding your personality. It gives you a better chance of finding someone you can live with long term. In other words, he's saying know yourself in order to marry someone. So first of the three is honesty. He says this is foundational. He said cultivating trust in a relationship by being transparent about every action you make in your life. So it's interesting because I think sometimes in our society today, it's easy to tell what people like to call like white lies or to kind of get away with little things that aren't harmful or deceptive to others, but that can lead to a lack of truth. Sometimes truth with others, but sometimes also truth with ourselves. And we lie often enough, we tend to believe things. The best is when someone is always late to something and they always make up an excuse or maybe a little what they might consider a white lie as to why they were late. But I do find it interesting because at a certain point they believe that, you know, there really is always a reason why I'm late rather than taking kind of that accountability of actually I'm not and I made up this reason as to why I didn't make it here. And again, a silly example, but why this is important is Jordan Peterson is saying that honesty as one of those three principles to consider when selecting a romantic partner is important because it starts with yourself. He said, be honest about who you are and what you stand for. And I think this is something that especially in those teenage and in those early, mid, late 20s, if you're single, sometimes you're still trying to figure that out. And that's part of the reason why dating relationships in those single years can be so hard. He said, do your actions create trust in relationships or subtract from it and vice versa? So in other words, are what we do, the things we're doing, are they trustworthy or are they leading to a lack of trust being established in the relationship? He said, it's a choice to not lie. That is, it's a choice not to lie to your spouse or the person you're dating. And I thought that was interesting even from a biblical perspective. Jesus Christ, we know that famous line in Matthew chapter 5 where he talks about, let your yes be yes and your no be no. He says, let what you say be simply Yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. Why is that significant? Because I think as Jordan Peterson is saying, it starts with being honest with ourselves about who we are, what we do, what we like, what we're interested in. Some people when they're in dating relationships will suddenly say they're interested in something, let's say like cars that they've never been interested in, but they just say that because the person that they're interested in and they're dating really likes cars and they so they say that to try to attract attract the other individual i knew this woman and it's not a lie but i do think it's one of those moments where it's kind of this hiding in a certain respect of ourselves every year of her marriage when she would wake up she would wake up in the morning before her husband woke up so that she could go and do her makeup because she didn't want him to see her without makeup on during the day. And I thought it was really interesting um, because part of me wondered, okay, is that a lack of just kind of being honest or having a sense of integrity with how you look? You know, is it, you know, self-esteem? I think it could be any number of things. 
But it goes back to this whole foundational idea that what Jordan Peterson is saying, and that is honesty, how integral this is to relationships and who you're choosing to marry. And how I think even if you're already married, working on honesty, you know, doing kind of that check-in and that tune-up, am I honest with myself? Am I honest with others? Do I kind of try to sneak in simple little uh, things that that, you know, are simple and maybe are tiny, what you believe are white lies that could actually have a negative impact. I think my producer actually just said, I wish my wife would do that with regard to doing her makeup every day in the morning before he wakes up. I, I think that's what he's saying here. I, I know that's a joke, but oh my goodness. There's some people who might think that. And yes, indeed, he is kidding. Okay, don't worry. I won't, I won't tell on you. So the second in three things that Jordan Peterson says are foundational to consider when choosing a romantic partner, and the second is the ability to negotiate, and the third is compatibility. He said, with regard to the ne- ability to negotiate. He said the right person will be someone you can negotiate with because there will be differences between you. And there should be because that means the two of you bring different skill sets to bear the problems that you will face. Okay, this one was fascinating to me. So what he's saying essentially is you need to be able to negotiate, to be able to work through something, disagree, have different perspectives, and come to a conclusion. Ideally, hopefully, without fighting, without blood being drawn along the way. But what he says is so important. He's saying that you should be able to negotiate with the other person because you recognize part of the great thing about marriage and that relationship is that you both bring something different. And I'll add that what we find other and different in the other person is what we are attracted to. So that otherness and that difference is what we should appreciate even those challenging moments when we want to do something our way. But he says this is what brings different skill sets to help us solve our problems. That's a good thing. But I think sometimes we think about those different skill sets, those difference of opinions, the different perspectives as male and female as a negative thing. But instead, we can use it to strengthen and consider and, as he says, negotiate to make decisions. He asks the question, can you negotiate through a conflict? I think that's a really important question. I remember when I was dating my now husband that I would tell him all the time that I really wanted to become good at fighting. Now, I realized in reading what Jordan Peterson was saying, what I wanted was I wanted to be a, become good and not just communicating, but negotiating or working through things of giving, not giving in or compromising in a negative way, but recognizing there are two people making a decision. And so I think what Jordan Peterson is saying about having the ability to negotiate is something really important to consider because it requires from a virtuous perspective, humility. It really, really, really demands humility, but it also demands confidence in what we ourselves are saying, the uh, gifts and perspectives that we have to give. The third and the three things that Jordan Peterson says are principles to consider when choosing a romantic partner is compatibility. So we talked about one, honesty as foundational, the ability to negotiate, and third, he says, compatibility. 
He said you don't want to just you don't want too much mismatch between your partner and your personality. I thought this was interesting because sometimes you hear the argument that opposites attract, and then you hear the other that birds of a feather flock together. It's not just a matter of opinion, he said. It's a matter of difference. So when we have different opinions on things, sometimes that can go. But when we are actually different, sometimes that just goes too far. I thought this compatibility comment was important because I think we live in a culture where we see the polarization of ideas, of theological and philosophical mindsets. So he's talking about everything from personality to also those foundational things of what you believe in. And that's why he started with the most foundational thing in relationships and choosing a romantic partner being first and foremost, honesty. That's honesty with ourselves about who we are, what we believe, so that we can discover who we're compatible with, so that we can discover what gifts and skills we and the other person have to offer in order to negotiate and resolve conflicts and make decisions. As I said before, Jordan Peterson said, these three reasons, among many more, are why it's essential to understanding your personality. He said it gives you a better chance of finding someone you can live with long term. This actually reminds me of some of the words of St. Paul in Romans chapter 12, when he talks about uh, not having too high of an opinion of yourself. He says, For by the grace given to me, I bid everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith which God has assigned him. For as in one body we have many members, and all the members do not have the same function. So we though many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. This section from St. Paul in his letter to the Romans chapter 12, I think reminds us of being humble, not having too high of opinion of ourselves, recognizing soberly our gifts, the gifts of others that are God-given, and how we each have a part to play. This includes in marriage. Although it's so difficult sometimes when you think you're right in marriage or in a dating relationship, But I think this follows up with what modern psychology is saying. Psychologists such as Jordan Peterson, when he's saying compatibility, the ability to negotiate and honesty are highly important when choosing that person you're going to marry. Now, from a Catholic perspective, I always love to talk about who should you be looking for in a spouse? We've talked about this before here on Trending, but I want to just give a quick Sparknotes version. I love St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 5 when he talks about the mission of husbands and wives. If you are dating, if you are married, read Ephesians 5. It's a good punch in the gut challenge for what Christian Catholic marriage is is what God intends. But his message to men is that husbands are to lay down their lives for their wives, for their brides. That is, men are meant to die for the women they know, love, and choose as their bride. And so how do you choose a spouse? Or how do you become a better spouse, gentlemen? Who are you willing to die for? Are you challenging yourself to die to yourself of stop putting yourself first and foremost, but to truly be willing, if necessary, to physically die for your bride. Women, in that same letter to the Ephesians, St. Paul talks about how women are called to be submissive to their husbands. 
called to be under the same mission as their husbands. That's a whole nother ball of wax that we could talk about more in depth another day. But remember, submission means to be under the same mission. So the question is, how are we finding a spouse who has the same mission oriented and under our Lord Jesus Christ, the Christian vision of marriage? And then who are we willing to follow in that Christian vision of marriage? I think that those are the, some of the key ideas in discovering and unpacking how to choose a spouse. Okay, I want to unpack some of the riveting responses I've been receiving on social media. I threw up this question, also asked it yesterday on Trending. Did you not want kids at any point? And if so, what changed your mind eventually about having children? So my husband, um, this one, so my husband actually, before we got married, actually before we were even dating, I remember he was discerning religious life as was I. And we're talking in college about just kind of the world and families. He said, you know, I really don't want to get married because I really don't want to have children. I said, well, why? And he said, because I'm terrified of raising a child in the world we live in. I think the fear of the current world we live in is something that every generation in a certain respect has, whether it be due to war, moral depravity, familial situation, poverty, less than ideal circumstances. All of these can be reasons why people might not want to bring a child into the world. And I find it fascinating because all of these have to do with us choosing what we believe are the best circumstances for a human being to live today. And as I say, and I think this is important, God chose us to live in the world we're living today. He chose us to live at this point in history. He chose our children to live at this point in history. Is that a little scary at times? Absolutely. But we should also have confidence in the fact that God ordained this time for us to be alive. And that this time is the time he chose would also be the best possibility for us making our way to heaven to be with him. God equips us for the journey. Okay, so JD on Instagram said what led him to being open to kids eventually was finding the right woman. It kind of reminded me a little bit of my husband's journey, given the fact that, again, he was like absolutely anti-children, but he was scared of having kids in the world uh, that we live in prior to us dating. And so I think that sometimes that really does change. I would be scared of having children too if I didn't have a spouse and a spouse I could rely on and plan to have a family with. Something to consider, especially when people are in crisis pregnancy situations. James on Facebook said he began feeling pulled toward the Catholic Church and his wife and he stopped using contraception after almost seven years. He said our son was born a month before our confirmation. So in other words, what led him to be open to having children was that pull toward Catholicism. And then they stopped using contraception. God changed their lives and they have this beautiful baby boy now. On Twitter, Bob shared this. I thought it was great with regard to changing his mind about having children. He said what changed his mind was having one. He show, said it showed me that we were literally born for this. I think that that is so profound. That when you have a child and you start doing it, you don't have all the pieces figured out. It's not always easy. But you realize that literally God created us to be parents. And there's confidence that we can find that God chose you as a particular child's parent. 
Okay, Patrick on Instagram said he never didn't want kids, not ever, but he said his biggest regret was not starting a family sooner. Casey on Facebook said, to be honest, I was scared to death about becoming a dad. But once I was, once the baby was born, I held him in my arms and I knew that God called me to this moment and that our Lord and the Blessed Mother would be with me at every moment. He said, this little boy is now a little over six months old and I wouldn't trade this for anything. I love this testimony of Casey because it speaks volumes to how scared we can be of the future, the unknown, of the dependence of a child. But he said he said he was scared to death of being a dad. But once he held that baby in his arms, the confidence he needed was there. And I think that that's the gift of parenthood and what we need to encourage people. You don't have it all figured out, but you will be equipped. This is Timory from Trending with Timory. Roe v. Wade has been overturned. The decision of abortion returns to the states. And maybe you're saying, okay, so what do we do now? What do I do? Well, my guest tomorrow is going to join me, Jill Stanek, and we're going to talk about what you can do locally to help women who are pregnant and abortion vulnerable within your own community. So join me Friday at 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.